If you've got a Bible, a hard copy or a digital copy there with you, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. And while you get yourself sort of situated in Luke 7, uh, let's pray. God, thanks for this morning, uh, Lord, for the opportunity to come into worship to declare the truth of that song, that out of your love for the world, you sent your son that whoever would believe on you shall not perish, but have eternal life. God, that is the great news and the great hope of the gospel. That's what we gather together this morning in order to celebrate. It's what we gather together this morning in order to um, cherish and cling to. It's where we draw our hope and our comfort. God, I pray um, during our time here over the next 45 or 50 minutes or, or whatever it, it ends up being, God, that the truth of your son on the cross would be what takes center stage. God, that everything else, Lord, would, would be shifted to the side, God, so that we can just focus on the power of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. God, I pray that your spirit would be here among us, uh, move in us as a congregation, in us as individuals, Lord, challenge and convict, encourage, support, comfort, Lord, open our eyes to the truth of your word. Teach us, God, we pray that your spirit would take your words and press them into our hearts, Lord. Um, God, I pray that what I say and what uh, we bring out of your scriptures today, Lord, um, God, I pray that you would lead and guide and direct that. God, that you would speak more loudly than me or more loudly than any other person here in this time together, Lord. Uh, would this be all about you and the beauty of your son and the beauty of his work on our behalf, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Luke 7, 1 to 17, that's what we're gonna look at this morning. It's two accounts that kind of have one similar overriding theme. And uh, while you get yourself kind of situated into those first 17 verses, I want to start our time by talking about a recent set of data and research that was released uh, just like kind of in conjunction with Easter. It's a, it's a survey, a study that Gallup does every year. And in that study, they take three years worth of data, they kind of smoosh it all together, and every three years you get a picture of what Gallup would call religious affiliation in the United States. And that data has all sorts of different ramifications, you can kind of chase it out in different directions, but the point that I want to pull up for us this morning is that in the 2018, 19, and 20 compiling of that data, 21% of Americans would say that they are religiously unaffiliated which that category in like a sociological religious studies sort of uh, realm of thought is what is called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N. Nuns are those who would say, not necessarily that they don't believe that there's a God or not even necessarily that they're antagonistic toward God if there is a God. They would just say they have no religious affiliation. So he exists or he doesn't exist. It makes no difference on the bearing and the functioning of their life. That number, 21%, has grown dramatically in the last 20 years. In the grouping of data that came out in 2000, that number was 8%. In the grouping of data that came out in 2010, that number was 13%. In 
now it's 21. And the easy thing to do is to look at that data, especially for those who are in older generations, and to look at millennials like myself and Gen Z, those the generation beneath me, and say, well, it's you young people that don't believe. That's actually not the whole story. While it is true that 31% of millennials put themselves in the nun category and 33% of Generation Z that's above 18 years old and therefore old enough to take part in the study puts themselves in the nun category, that category of individual has increased dramatically across all demographics, whether that's financial, geographical, educational, racial, political, and generational. Traditionalists, which is the generation born in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, in 2004% identified in that none category, and now it's 7%. Among baby boomers, that number was 7% in 2000, and now it's 13. Among Generation X, it was 11% in 2000. Now it's 20%. Also inside that number, for every one individual within America who goes from being non-religious, a nun, to being, Christi to being Christian, for every one person that does that, somewhere between two and three individuals who grew up in the church walk away and affiliate as a nun. So the data there would be to say that the church would be shrinking in America fairly rapidly with every passing year. I bring all that up really to bring out one more specific point. And that's this. Inside of that big 21% category of nuns in America, only 4% would call themselves atheists. That means that the vast majority of those who claim no religious affiliation either believe there's a God, but just kind of don't care, or might even have positive thoughts about God, but have no specific religious affiliation. So they think maybe they could relate to God or they could have some sort of interaction with God, but they don't need the overarching umbrella of religion in order to help them do that. Many people within the nun category have very positive thoughts about Jesus. They just don't believe him to be Lord. Or they've had such a sour experience with the church that they've decided to walk away from Christianity. A large percentage of America's population feel friendly toward Jesus, but the harsh reality would be that they do not have Jesus as their friend by the grace of God through faith in him. As I was reading through all of that, the question for me became, 21% of America and the vast majority of that 21% have friendly feelings about Jesus. My question for them would be, do you really know the Jesus that you've got sort of passing friendly thoughts about and yet do not hold up as Lord? Do you really understand this Jesus that you kind of think nicely about, but you don't think supremely about? That's the beauty of the gospel of Luke. Luke tells you right at the very beginning, the whole reason that he is writing is that you may have certainty about who Jesus is. And then he goes on to tell you in Jesus's own words, who Jesus is. He goes on to show you what Jesus did, what that means, why it matters. In Luke 6 that we just finished, you get a sermon. A sermon where Jesus is describing, these, these are my people, and this is how you'll know who my people are, and these are those who are not my people, or how you'll know who aren't mine. Then Luke 7 is a series of four interactions between Jesus and either individuals or groups of people. Back to back to back to back four of them. And the first two that we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 17, 
involve Jesus interacting with people who might think highly of him, but don't necessarily have saving faith in him. And you walk away from both of the accounts and you kind of think to yourself, if only they really like knew who they were actually dealing with. Like if only they had a firm grasp of who this Jesus is that they just interacted with. I contend this morning that that statement applies to the 21% of American population who would identify as none, but I also contend that that question, do you really know this Jesus that you're dealing with, is also a significant question for a large number of people who fill churches every single Sunday. And I'll explain to you what I mean as we go along here. If you've got Luke 7 open in front of you, let's read it. It says this, when he had concluded saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he went He sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped. And uh, and he said, Young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Two accounts, they generally fall under the same heading, Jesus healing. But they're actually set up back to back because Luke wants you to see the differences, not just the similarity. They're put right next to each other so that you can see that even though there's a similar result at the end, it's actually the contrasts in the account that help us understand some things about who Jesus is. And so we're gonna look at the two contrasting accounts. We're gonna get one picture of a powerful, compassionate savior. And then I wanna spend kind of like half our time together talking about some implications of this for the church today. The main point is this, Jesus's power and compassion are the effective means of his healing work. And those two words, effective means, those are the two words that are gonna be important for us this morning. I've mentioned this before, but when you read the gospels, Really, when you read any passage of scripture, it can be really helpful to read through it maybe a couple times, then close it or just kind of look up and try to recount for yourself what happened in the story and try to catch the details. That's really the bigger part. And so I just want to recount, summarize in, in my own words here, what happens in these two stories. Jesus finishes his sermon there on this kind of down below a mountain with a crowd of people there with him. And when he finishes it, he goes back into Capernaum. And Capernaum is sort of the hub for his ministry in the early part 
of his ministry that takes place in Galilee. Capernaum's a city right along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And as he enters into Capernaum with this large crowd of people, he's approached by a group of elders, Jewish elders, religious leaders of the time, who have been sent to him by a centurion who has a sick servant. Now, a centurion was a Roman military commander who had charge over about 100 men. Typically, they were told they couldn't marry. That's because a centurion would be sent to like the far edges of the Roman Empire and they would be there for years at a time at times. And that was really hard on a family. So they were encouraged, don't get married. But that meant they had complicated relationships with their servants because their servants were the people that traveled with them everywhere. And kind of reflective of the Roman mentality of the day, those Roman commanders could be really brutal toward their servants, but also grew to have quite an attachment to them because they were the closest thing to family that these commanders had for years at a time. So you get this particular Roman commander, and he apparently has very affectionate, warm feelings toward his servant because that servant is sick, and the centurion is trying to find a way to help him be better. And so these religious leaders approach Jesus, and they come under the guise of this Roman centurion is worthy of your healing power, Jesus. Why? Well, because he loves our nation, that would be the Jewish people, and he even built us a synagogue. So despite the fact that this Roman centurion is a Gentile, he's not Jewish, he loves the Jewish nation, which we're not told exactly what that means. But Luke pointing out that Jesus is about to have an interaction with a Gentile is very significant. Luke said at the very start of his gospel, at the account of Jesus' birth, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lord, and that his birth was good news for all the people. That is a recurring theme throughout the gospel of Luke. And so Luke brings forward a lot of these accounts of Jesus interacting with someone who's not Jewish. They're Gentiles. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus is good news, not just for the Jewish people, but for the nations. So here's this Roman commander. He's a representative of this oppressive Roman government that's uh, leading and, and has... Israel kind of underneath its larger thumbprint of its empire, and yet he loves the Jewish people and he even built us a synagogue, they say. So that tells us this guy's really wealthy. And also he's got, at the very least, non-antagonistic feelings toward Jewish faith. He's worthy of your healing. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say anything, but he starts making his way toward the centurion's house. We're not told what he's planning to do when he gets there. We're not even told that Jesus says anything to these religious leaders. He just goes with them. They get close to the centurion's house. They're met by a second wave of people, this time a group of the centurion's friends. Notice how different their appeal is. They approach in verse six. The centurion sent friends to tell him, Jesus, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy. First group shows up. This man's worthy of having his servant healed. Second group shows up. Hey, our master, our friend, the commander wants us to tell you he's not worthy of you to come into his house. In fact, he's not even worthy of you, he's not even worthy to come to you. That's verses six and seven. Two very different approaches. This man deserves his servant to be healed. This man doesn't think he even deserves to be in your presence. And when he hears that, Jesus, verse nine, is amazed. Your translation might say he marvels at the man. That would be the centurion. 
He looks around at the people with him and he says, I've not seen faith like this even in Israel. And then verse 10, it's almost like a passing statement. The friends went home and the servant was well. The high point of the story actually isn't the healing. The high point of the story is the interaction between the second group sent from the centurion and Jesus, where they say, this guy understands authority. He's not worthy to come into your presence. He's got men under him. He says, go, they go. He says, come, they come. His servant, he says, do this. The servant does it. Jesus, he understands. You could just say, tell the illness to leave and the illness will obey. And Jesus says, I've never seen faith like this, not even in Israel. And then the servant was well. The second account starts in verse 11. Jesus is about to enter into a town called Nain. That was 25 miles from Capernaum. That's a long trip on foot. And so some time obviously has passed between the first account and this one. And Jesus has this large crowd of disciples, followers, listeners with him. They arrive at the city of Nain. They're going in through the town gate and they're met by another large crowd. And it's a funeral procession. Funerals in that day were a little different than in our day. Namely, because the body needed to be buried immediately. Jewish religious and ceremonial law said that if anybody touched a corpse, they were unclean and they were made unclean for seven days. You touch it, you're ceremonially unclean for seven days, cut off from worshiping at the, at the temple, cut off from the people. There's an extensive process whereby you could be made clean again. But it wasn't just if you touched the body. If you touched anything that a corpse had touched, you were unclean for seven days. If you touched a person that had touched anything that a corpse had touched, you were unclean for seven days. So you buried the body very quickly. It was a matter of ceremonial importance. And in a funeral procession, typically the person grieving, the family of the dead individual would lead the way. So Jesus and this crowd of people come into the city of Nain and they would have been met first by this woman all by herself. No husband. She's a widow. She's already buried her husband. And then we're told in the account that this is her only son. Luke wants us to understand that this is just desperately sad. Here's a woman who's already buried her husband. And in this time, in that culture, if you were a widow who had lost your husband, you relied on your son to be able to care for you. Now here's this woman whose only son is dead. The whole thing is woefully sad. There's a big procession of people behind her. And that's not necessarily because Everybody knew her within the town. It's mostly because it was thought to be virtuous to just be part of the funeral procession. So the whole town comes out because it's the right thing to do. Jesus sees this woman, this crowd of people, sees what's happening and notice the woman says nothing to Jesus. He walks up to the funeral bier there that's got the body laying on it in an open casket. He touches it which is unthinkable for a Jewish person because now he would be unclean. But we saw previously when Jesus healed a leper that touching an unclean thing does not make Jesus unclean. His holiness is able to make unclean things clean. So he touches it and then he looks at the young man and he says, get up. And the young man sits up and he starts talking. And then he gets off of the funeral bier there, out of the open casket. Jesus gives the young boy, the man, whatever age he is, back to the mother. That reunion would be so joyous. And then the crowd is amazed. 
And the crowd says, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited us, which doesn't mean that they recognize that Jesus is God. It means that they think in the miraculous act, God has visited this people. Oh, if only you knew who you were dealing with. Like, no, like God literally is visiting you right here. He's present with you. Do you know who you're dealing with? That becomes the question. And the two things are set side by side because you're supposed to see the contrasts that help you understand the similarity. In the first story, there's a servant who's sick and there's a son. There's a man and there's a woman in the second. There's a person of power, a Roman centurion commander, and there's this woman who is completely destitute at this point. There's someone who's sick, the servant, and there's someone who's dead, the son. One time Jesus says nothing and the servant is healed. The second time Jesus speaks directly to this dead young man and he raises from the dead. The centurion asks for Jesus's help. The widow says absolutely nothing to him. In the first account, Jesus is amazed by the centurion's faith. In the second account, the crowd is amazed by Jesus's power. What do we learn? Like, what is the takeaway from all of that supposed to be? One thing that's really important in any topic within the Bible, and particularly when we deal with things of the miraculous nature, is to keep all of those accounts in all of the Bible in mind when you deal with one particular passage, not to just isolate and lift out one thing and then try to make that like a uniform principle for everything. So when we think about Jesus healing, we've already seen in the gospel of Luke that Jesus has power over the natural forces of the world. That is one of the things that Luke wants us to understand. Here is God, the son, and he is sovereign and authoritative over all things. So when Jesus tells the disease to leave, it leaves. When Jesus commands wind and waves to calm down, they calm down. In this case, he doesn't even appear to have to say anything. Like, This servant can be sick and Jesus cannot be present in the place where the servant is. He can be having a conversation over here and by merely thinking it or, you know, asking of it to happen within his own mind or whatever the case might be, like a metaphorical snap of the fingers, that disease is gone. That is his authority. And we see in the second account, that authority also allows him to reverse the natural course of death. And Jesus is going to do this other times as well. And both of those things, actually all three of those realities, his power over the natural world, his ability to heal and cast out disease with just kind of like the blink of an eye and his ability to reverse the natural course of death, they point to something that's going to be fulfilled ultimately at the end of Jesus's life. They foreshadow the bigger work that Jesus is going to do. He's going to resurrect from the dead, reverse death's natural course in his own life. He is then going to raise to eternal life all of those who are his, dead, brought back to eternal life. And he's going to completely end disease and illness. Jesus's power over the natural world displayed for us in the gospels foreshadow his eventual restoring and recreating of all things. He is powerful. The other thing we learn in these accounts is that a person's worthiness does not compel Jesus to act. No one's ever merited Jesus's healing work or his saving grace. 
there's nothing about me, there's nothing about you that is so wonderful and so worthy and so, you know, meritorious that it compels Jesus to save or that it compels him to give any of his good gifts to us. We all come to Jesus as beggars, not as commanders. And that logically makes sense to us. Like in a salvific sense, we understand it's not my action that saves me. It's God's grace. And that is a gift of his. But then at times with the other gifts of God, it's very easy for us to drift into thinking that what actually matters is my own goodness and my own merit. And so I'm sick or someone near me is sick and we start to pray that the Lord would heal. And it's very easy for us to slip into like giving God a similar list from like Luke 7 here of why it is that they deserve or I deserve to be healed. They're a good person. They've followed you faithfully for years. They go to church. They sit on Sundays and they listen to the young pastor drone on and on for longer than he's supposed to every single week. God, please heal them. Like they deserve it. And we start to negate practically in our action what we know intellectually to be true, which is that we don't merit the gifts of God. They're of his grace. The religious leaders think that what Jesus needs is a, is a commendation of the centurion's worthiness. The centurion knows that his hope is not built on his own worthiness, but on Jesus's power, on Jesus's authority. And that same thing is true for us today. And that is really, really good news because if that weren't the case, then Jesus would act on behalf of no one. No one is going to earn salvation from Jesus. No one merits the grace, mercy, goodness, or power of Jesus. No one merits his gifts, his goodness and power, not ours, are what lead to his kindness, his grace, his love, and his mercy flowing toward us. We come to Jesus as beggars, or if we think we're going to come with our list of merits, we will find that there's nothing available for us because we could not possibly earn the gift of salvation or any of the other gifts of Jesus's and God's grace that he extends to us. But there's another truth at play here that sits kind of right alongside it. And that's that humility is compelling to Jesus. In fact, all throughout scripture, humility within humanity is compelling to the Lord. It's the humility of the commander that amazes Jesus and causes him to comment in Luke 7 verse 9. It's the humility of the widow that moves the compassion of Jesus. The commander is a person who has all sorts of things and all sorts of power, yet realizes that it is of no compelling merit. The widow, on the other hand, has nothing and therefore could not compel anyone to do anything on her behalf. That sort of humility is compelling to the Lord. It's that kind of humility that's necessary to receive the free gift of God's grace by faith in Jesus because it begins by recognizing that we need to be saved. The giving of any of God's gifts to us begins by recognizing that we have need for them and he has the power and the compassion to give them. Which brings me back to kind of the main idea. Jesus's power and compassion are the effective means of his healing work. His power, his compassion. He's not even asked to raise the widow's son. He does so because his compassion moves him to and because his power means he's capable of it. The same is true of the centurion's servant. It's not the centurion's worth 
that is the effective means by which Jesus heals the servant. It's Jesus's power and compassion that are the effective means by which the servant is healed. And the same is true for the people that Jesus saves today. He has compassion on humble sinners. He has the power to save humble sinners. The ultimate picture of that is the cross and the resurrection. The cross is the fullness of Jesus's compassion on display and the empty tomb is the fullness of Jesus's power on display. But it's also true for those that God gives any of his gracious gifts to. It's his power and his compassion that are the effective means of the giving of those gifts. I've mentioned this at various points in our journey through Luke, but there are a couple of topics that I want us to just be able to see what the gospel of Luke and the Bible have to say and then ask some questions about what that means for us. And healing is one of those topics. And so on February 28th, I started kind of wading into some of these questions as it surrounds healing, the miracle of healing, the gift of healing, God's work in healing. But I started with some questions actually about sickness because those root questions were the right place to start. Why is sickness in the world? And the answer to that is because sin is in the world. Now that doesn't mean your specific sin is the cause of your specific illness, but it means that because sin exists in the world generally, sickness exists in the world. And the second question I dealt with was if God is sovereign, like we're talking about and authoritative over all things, does that mean that he makes people sick? And if you want the fuller treatment of that answer, I encourage you to go listen to that February 28th sermon. But if you have listened to it and you remember, the answer I gave was, well, God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, then God is sovereign. This morning, I want to shift towards some foundational questions on the other side of that coin. Foundational questions about healing. I want to deal with three of them specifically this morning. And within those three questions, there's actually a couple sub-questions. So it's more like five questions, but I'm calling it three so that you feel like you're not going to be here forever. We'll keep working through some of these questions as we work our way through the gospel of Luke. So if you've got specific questions about an aspect of healing that aren't talked about this morning, know that there are more opportunities for us to talk about this as we work through this series. The first question is this, does Jesus still heal today? And my short answer to that question is to answer with a question and say, do you know who you're dealing with? The short answer to does Jesus still heal today is absolutely, unequivocally, enthusiastically, yes. But there's actually a question that sits underneath the question, does Jesus still heal today? And is typically the one that people are actually trying to ask. And that question is, does Jesus still heal instantaneously and miraculously today? To which I would answer do you understand who you're dealing with? Unequivocally, enthusiastically, that answer is yes. He does still heal miraculously and instantaneously. The same Jesus that walked the earth and healed the centurion's servant sits right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling and reigning, his compassion unchanged, his power unchanged, his goodness unchanged. And that means that he is absolutely still capable and willing to heal. He does so according to his power, according to his compassion, and according to his will. Remember, the effective means of Jesus's healing is his compassion, his power, So that then leads to the next question. What role then does modern medicine play in the healing miracles of God today? And the short answer that I have for that one is probably a bigger role than we give him credit for. Just think with me for a second about a sovereign providential God 
and the arrival of modern medicine. At some point, humans started to realize that illnesses were caused by foreign agents, either entering into the human body or in the case of like cancer, a destructive agent present within the human body. At another point, years later, technology advanced to the place where scientists and doctors could actually use a microscope to see those foreign agents and identify them. Then some more time passes and doctors and scientists are able to not only see those foreign invading or destructive agents within the human body, but they're able to identify which particular foreign agent causes which particular kind of sickness. Then some more years pass and they're able to isolate and treat this particular foreign agent that causes this illness with this particular drug and we can cure that or at least tame the symptoms until the body fights it off. And then at some point, some more time passes and scientists and doctors are able to preemptively treat foreign agents that cause particular kinds of illness. Who do you think guided all of that? Like who created the human beings with the brain power capable of figuring out the wonders of all of that modern medicine? a sovereign providential God. And so you go to the doctor today because you've got the sniffles. And if you got those exact same sniffles a few hundred years ago, you might have sniffled all the way to your deathbed. But now you walk into the doctor sniffling, he hands you something and 48 hours later, you feel great. No more sniffles. And God ought to get the glory for that. Like we take modern medicine and we think, medicine. We should take modern medicine and think, what a miracle of God that I could be healed in this kind of way. No one has polio in this room. That's a miracle of God. An absolute miracle. The fact that various cancers aren't immediate death sentences, that is a miracle. The fact that a pastor across town had a heart attack three or four weeks ago, immediately had two stents put into the arteries connected to his heart, and now he's leading a totally normal life, that is a miracle. The fact that Brian Bliss had surgery for back pain, literally, think about this. One human cut open another human, messed around with stuff, sewed that human back up, and three weeks later, Brian stood up here and led our church in worship on Easter. That is a miracle of God. All surgery, they can open you up and keep you alive. Like, that is astounding. They can open you up and mess with your heart and keep you alive. They can open you up and mess with your brain and keep you alive. That's a miracle of God. The ability for human beings to solve problems and heal disease related to physical and mental health is a miracle, and we take it for granted. We act as though those things mean very little. But you going to the doctor and getting medicine for strep throat or for pink eye or for the common cold is a gift of God's common grace that he's been orchestrating among humanity for hundreds of years. Leading and guiding with his providential hand so that you being born at this time in this place means that you've got access to medicines that can heal in a way that ought to be a testament to the glory and the goodness of who God is and his gift of common grace to humanity. He is to be praised for those things. And the sad reality is that we often don't consider those things a miracle of God. And thus we rob God of the praise 
that his compassion, his power, and his healing kindness deserve. In fact, there are some strains of the church that would set God's instantaneous miraculous healing and God's gift of modern medicine opposed to one another. As if somehow the same God that miraculously does this is not the same sovereign, powerful God that created this. And therefore, we need to discredit one and only rely on the other. And we do that to our peril. We, even within like the mainstream sort of church, not even on kind of the fringes that would think about that dichotomy, we don't have a, a deep enough appreciation for the common good that God works among humanity. Even, get this, among non-believing individuals that bring about the miraculous good of God according to his will in his world. That is a miracle and is a gift of God. Which leads me to the last question. What role does my faith play in God's healing today? Well, do you understand who you're dealing with? That's why we started there. Keep in view what's happening in all of these healing accounts. Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke chapter four, and he does so in a synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and he quotes from a passage in Isaiah where he says, announces himself, I am the Messiah. This passage is fulfilled in your hearing today. And what is one of the evidences that Isaiah gives and then that Jesus gives for how you're gonna know this is him? The sick are gonna be healed. So what's happening in these healing passages? It is a demonstration that the kingdom of God has arrived here on the earth and it is bursting in to the brokenness that exists around us. Those gifts of God healing, whether in Jesus's time or in our time today, are a picture, they're a sign of the kingdom of God invading the domain of darkness that Satan falsely rules here on this earth. And when Jesus heals, he heals for the good of the individual. You better believe it was for the good of that individual who sat up from the dead. You better believe it was for the good of that servant who was sick and on the verge of dying and is now healthy. But it's also for the common good of those watching. It's a testament to the power of the gospel. And it's a witness to the rest of the watching world. All of those things are still true today. When God heals, it is a sign. It's a picture of the kingdom of God taking background from the momentary domain of Satan's false rule here on this earth. He heals as a gift. It's a gift to the individual. He heals as a gift that's for the common good of God's people and for humanity in general. He heals as a means of pointing us back to the gospel, its power and its goodness and its glory. He heals as a gift to the watching world. He heals as a witness to the power of the gospel that alongside these miraculous events, God's people would proclaim the gospel. And so what role does my faith play in that? Well, there are at least uh, over the course of this, I hope you're seeing, there are like four things at play. God's power, God's compassion, an individual's faith, and God's will. How do we get all those four things in the right balance so that we understand healing correctly? Because there are streams of Christianity that would hold one piece out of balance, that being faith. And they would say to you, if you just had enough faith, you would always be healed. That's got problems. It immediately leads to questions. Questions like number one, the woman never said anything. So right out of scripture, we've got a problem here because we're not told anything about her faith. 
Question number two, what happens if I don't get healed? I followed Jesus my whole life. I earnestly believe on him for every ounce of my salvation. I'm affirming the fact that I believe that he's got the power to heal and yet he doesn't heal. Am I defective? Is my faith bad? Should I be questioning my very salvation? We've got to hold those four things in proper balance. God's power, his authority, or God's power, his compassion, our faith, and his will. And I give you three suggestions for that. Number one, recognize his power. Understand that when you go before the Lord and you pray for someone to be healed, you're asking the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe to do something that he can do with just like the snap of a finger, the uttering of a single word, literally kind of just like the raising of a metaphorical eyebrow. Jesus didn't need to say anything in our first account today. That same God is at work right now. Know who you're dealing with. God's people should absolutely pray that God would heal. We're dealing with the all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things. And to not pray for healing would be to act as though he is something other than what he is. It would be to diminish what we think about his power and his ability. Second, recognize his compassion. Jesus is moved to compassion by the suffering of humanity. You see that all throughout scripture. You see it here with the widow who's lost her son now. You see it with God and his people in Exodus. When God's people cry out in their suffering, he is moved by compassion on their behalf. You can be as sure of that reality today as clearly as we see it in the gospels and as clearly as we see it throughout scripture. God hears the cries of his people and he is moved. Now, that raises the sub-question that I want to be able to deal with more fully in another time, but it would be disingenuous for me to at least not touch on it right now. And that question is, then why isn't everybody always healed? If God is powerful and compassionate and those two things are the effective means by which he heals, why is it that sometimes a powerful God could be moved to compassion and not heal someone? That's a fantastic question. Just because God is powerful and compassionate does not mean that he's going to heal every single time. We can absolutely trust that what God chooses to do in any and every situation is that which is best for his kingdom, that which is best for his glory, and that which is best for us as individuals in light of eternity. But that means that God sometimes hears the cries of our suffering and he's moved to act on our behalf and the gift that he gives us isn't healing. In that moment, he he chooses to give some other gift of his grace. Jesus in his own words tells us that God the Father is a good father who does not give rocks when when his children ask for bread, who does not give snakes when they ask for fish. So sometimes we go before the Lord and we ask for healing. And modern medicine can't bring it, doesn't bring it. And God's miraculous instantaneous power doesn't bring it. And so God, moved by compassion with all the power of sovereign God, gives a different gift to his people. Have you ever sat with someone who's got chronic illness or sat with someone in the last moments of their life? Those people have a kind of grace 
that's almost entirely unexplainable to those who aren't in those situations and thus have not needed to be gifted with that grace. I can't describe what it's like to sit with somebody who knows they're dying. They've, they've reached old age and they're just passing because of age or they've had a long battle with an illness and they're passing because of the illness and they've walked faithfully with Jesus for a long time and they prayed for that healing and they used modern medicine and everything and it just didn't turn out the way that they thought it would turn out and you sit with them and the things they have to say about the goodness and the kindness of God absolutely blow your mind because God has given them a gift and that gift wasn't healing That was another gift of his grace to face the challenge that lay ahead of them, whether it be a long-term illness or their final breaths. Whether he chooses to heal in any given incident or not, God gives something good to his people as they cry out to him. His power means that he can and his compassion means that he wants to. He's moved with compassion by the suffering of his people. And then last We respond to those things in humility. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't pray boldly. We absolutely pray boldly, but we do it from a position that recognizes who we are in relation to a sovereign and a holy God. We don't need to be showy about those prayers. There's no formula or prescription that ensures God is going to act on your behalf and heal every single time. We don't need to rattle off a description of our worthiness or the worthiness of the one that's in question. We don't demand that God heals as though we're the one who's in control of his gifts and his power. Instead, we recognize the greatness of who God is. We recognize that our faith is not the ultimate determiner in God's action. And we recognize that that is a good thing. We absolutely need to believe that God is capable of restoring what is broken and sick and subject to suffering. The resurrection that we celebrated last Sunday is evidence of that. The coming second return of Jesus and the recreation of all things is a reminder of that. The compassion and the power of Jesus exist today in the same way that they did when Jesus was walking this earth. And our faith in the gospel must include those realities. And so our faith includes the fact that there is a powerful, compassionate God who acts on behalf of his people. But the force of our faith is not going to be what determines a sovereign God's actions. While recognizing who we're dealing with in terms of power and compassion, we also need to recognize who we're dealing with in terms of limitless and perfect knowledge. You can be sure at any moment that God is doing what is best for the advancement of his purpose in his world. That purpose that he is going to be made known throughout the entire earth as his people drawn from every tribe, nation, and tongue glorify him and enjoy him supremely. And that means that however he chooses to act, he is doing what is best for that purpose in light of eternity. And so he gives gifts to his people. Sometimes that gift is healing. Sometimes that's a different gift of his grace. And to quote John Piper, whenever God gives us any of his gifts, we get the joy he gets the glory. If God gifts us with healing, we get the joy, he gets the glory. If he gifts us with something else, the endurance to withstand a long-term illness, the courage to face a death, we enjoy the gift, he gets the glory. He's weaving together a tapestry. And when we on the other side of glory, and we are able to view that tapestry with perfect knowledge and with his perspective, it is going to be 
eternally perfect in light of his good and glorious purpose. Not a single thread is going to be out of place or misplaced. And that means that when we ask for healing and he heals, it is to his glory for the sake of his purpose to accompany the message of his gospel that we might learn to enjoy him more deeply. And it also means that when he does not choose to heal, it is for his glory, for the sake of his purpose, to accompany the message of his gospel that we might learn to enjoy him more deeply. Not Easter Sunday, but the Sunday before. There was a family here during one of our services who was back for the first time in well over a year. Some of that was COVID related, but actually most of it was due to the fact that he had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. In fact, a form of cancer that comes with very grim sorts of realities. They did a bunch of various chemotherapies and treatments, and there were positive signs of that initially. And then all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, he was paralyzed. And the doctors initially thought that his paralysis was due to like a tightening grip of that cancer's hold on his body. Well, then some more tests and some more uh, appointments later, they came to find out that what he actually had alongside his cancer was an infection that had attacked his spine. So they treated the infection and then he could walk again. And so he's here two Sundays ago with his wife and a daughter, and he's back, back here by the door in a wheelchair. And he worships alongside our church body for the first time in well over a year. And I will never forget this. When the service got over, in a very labored sort of way, he used a walker to bring himself all the way down to talk to me right here. And he asked if we could pray. And his wife was standing there behind him. And mind you, he has not been healed from cancer. That disease is going to take his life at some point, and he knows it. And we stood here, and I said, what, what do you want me to pray for? And he said, I never thought I would be back in here. And it is a gift of God that I'm standing here today. And so we stood there and we prayed and I was crying and he was crying and his wife was crying and his daughter was standing here and she was crying and we got all the way done and I just kind of looked at him and he said, I enjoy every single day right now because I didn't think I'd be having them at this point. And we, we talked for like 10 or 15 minutes and he's talking about all the people that were praying for him that he would be healed. And he's talking about all the medical processes that he's been through. And he's talking about the miracle of the reality that it is that he was back in this place worshiping with his church family on a Sunday morning. And the whole big ball of it was this testimony to the power of God and the compassion of God and the humility of an individual who enjoys the gifts of God that God might receive the glory that is due to him. And... This amazing picture of how it is that God works in these incidents of healing. Is it for that man's good? Absolutely. Is it for the good of all of us who would see that, that we would all be encouraged about the power of the gospel? Absolutely. Should it be a testimony and a witness to those outside that there is a God who is powerful and compassionate and can do these sorts of things? But was his faith the effective means? No. The effective means was the power and the compassion of God. Let me end where I started. A growing number of 
people in America identify as nuns. They might think, again, N-O-N-E-S. There could be a growing number of people that are becoming nuns. I don't know. They might think nice things about Jesus. But the question really comes back to, do you know who you're dealing with? And so we fill churches on Sundays in America still. But the question that sits before everyone who comes into a church on a Sunday morning is, do you know who you're dealing with? And unfortunately, especially within the last 50 years or so, we have turned this issue of healing into a thing that's very divisive within the life of the church. Some people don't have enough faith. Some people are too charismatic and they look too much for miracles. Some people are, you know, stingy and like don't have any room for that and we divide about it when the reality is God should be getting the glory for the gift that he gives his people. He's done that through modern medicine and his providential hand. He's done it miraculously and instantaneously, oftentimes through the power of his healing. But no matter how it comes, all of God's people ought to recognize who we're dealing with, receive the gift with joy and give glory to God. And so does God still heal today? You bet your sweet bippy he does. He is powerful and compassionate. Does he owe us that healing? No. Does anything that I bring to the table compel him to heal on my behalf? No. His compassion and his power move him to do so for the sake of his gospel and his people's enjoyment. Should we pray for it? Absolutely. And then we can let God be God and trust his goodness in the response. Praising him for his glory and his goodness and enjoying his gifts no matter what they might be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. God, thank you that even when we've got questions that are difficult to get really complete answers on, we can turn to your word and see how it is that you've revealed yourself to us and we can hold on to rock solid truths about who you are and what that means for us. And so God, I pray that we as a church would be a people who unashamedly recognize that you are a God of all power and you are a God of immeasurable compassion. And God, I pray that means that we would be a people who are stirred to ask boldly in humility that you would heal. God, I wanna do that this morning. If there are those within this congregation or those within this congregation with family members who are facing illness and need healing, God, I pray that according to your power and your compassion and your will that you would heal. And God, I pray that if you choose to act in that way and that you heal, whether that comes through modern medicine or it comes instantaneously, I pray that those who receive the healing, I pray that the family of those who receive the healing, I pray that we as a church, God, that we would enjoy the gift and give you the glory. But God, if you choose not to heal and you give some other gift of your grace, God, I pray that that individual, those individuals, their family, and we as a church, God, that we would enjoy the gifts and you would get the glory. God, would that ever and always be the case? God, you're a good father who gives good gifts. And would your Holy Spirit teach us more and more what it means to enjoy those gifts and glorify the giver, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able, let's stand and sing. Amen.